Rav Tzoro Kakoen of Lublin was one of the most brilliant and creative of the Hasidic masters. And in a comment at the outset of Parshas Vayelech, he once again displays his brilliance in an area in which I think he has made uniquely significant contribution, and that is the question of what I call spiritual resilience, having a perspective and an insight and an understanding of how to deal with the type of failure that we all experience, failure which is in many ways endemic to the human condition. The Pasuk tells us right at the beginning of Parshas Dielech, the Moshe tells the nation that I am now 120 years old, and I can no longer go out and come in, and Hashem has told me, And obviously on the one hand, the message of the Pasuk is that Moshe is conveying to the people that his time is very fast coming to an end, and he is making those appropriate preparations. On the other hand, the phrase, Lo uchal od is a somewhat awkward phrase, and it's not entirely clear what does that mean. I can no longer go out and come in. Just kind of a strange and awkward phrase. So in his commentary pre-Tzadik, here on Harparsha, Rav Tzadok says the following. He starts off by referencing a point which we find in many Ba'alei Machshava, not only other Hasidic uh, Sfarim, but other Ba'alei and Sifrei Machshava. And that is that there's a fundamental difference between human beings and angels in Malachim. That in certain sources, Malachim, angels are referred to as Omdim. We know there's a tradition of the angel only having one leg. And the idea is that an angel stands, as opposed to a human being, a human being is a holech. Kol yimei ha'adam ba'olam hazen nikra holech, says Rav Tzaruk. There's a fundamental difference between human beings and angels. We can move, we walk, we can progress, we can grow in a more figurative sense, as opposed to the Malach, who is an omade. The Malach in many ways may be perfect, but the Malach is who it is, is who he is, from the moment that the Malach was created, and will always be the same, static, omade, standing in place. It may be a great place, but there's no room for growth. I suppose a human being is called a holech, a human being walks. Of course, when you walk, however, you can also fall. Says Rav Tzadok that unlike an angel, a human being, the whole intent of the human being is the whole purpose of life is to hopefully be walking and ultimately going from level to level, improving and growing until you can try to perfect yourself until you can get to the end of your life. Now, of course, almost no human being ever has fully perfected themselves. But that is the goal of life, to do our best, to always be walking, to always be advancing, to always be growing. In light of this background, says Rav Tzadok, this is what Moshe Rabbeinu was telling the people. Vayelech Moshe. Moshe is ex- being described as the ultimate, the quintessential holech. Moshe Rabbeinu was holech tamid b'malami madrega la madrega. And in fact, Moshe Rabbeinu may have been the only person in history who truly got to the top of the mountain. He in fact was able to perfect himself and reach the highest level, the highest madrega that a human being can ever reach. And therefore, says Rav Tzadok, this is what Moshe Rabbeinu was conveying to the people. I can no longer go out or come in. Go out, as Rav Tzadok understands it, is a metaphor for falling, for sinning, 
I can no longer be distant from who I'm supposed to be, distant from Hashem. Or lavo, come close, to grow, to do the right thing. In other words, says our tzadok, Hainu, the kol shelo yuchal od lotzeis, linpol mimadregaso, that Moshe had reached the point of such perfection, that it actually was, as for perhaps the only time in human history, impossible for him to fall, for him lotzeis, to go out, to be distant from Hashem, to fall from his madrega. He had in fact truly perfected himself. However, says Rav Tzadok, and here's where the unbelievable insight comes in, However, says Rav Tzadok, that's the second and final part of the Pasuk. It's not just but also Velavo. Because, says Rav Tzadok, once a person has reached the point where they can no longer fall, it also means that they can no longer grow. And Rav Tzadok is saying something quite profound. And that is, that of course no one wants to fail, no one wants to fall, we're all frustrated by those parts of our life that we find difficult and that we stumble repeatedly. Nevertheless, Rav Tzadok is pointing out something obvious, but truly profound and important to the human condition and certainly to religious life. And that is, that no growth is possible unless failure is also possible. If failure would be impossible, then we would be just like an angel, or a computer, or a robot. It would simply be impossible to grow. Growth is defined as making the right decision when I could have made the wrong one. But if there's no possibility of failure, if there's no possibility that I could have made a mistake, then there also would be no possibility of growth. For almost all of us, no matter where we are in our religious spectrum and on whatever level we're on, there is always the possibility of lotzeis, there's always the possibility of making mistakes and failing, and as frustrating as that can be, but that in and of itself is what creates the possibility of lovo, of growth. Almost everything that we cherish in life, in our personal lives, in our religious lives, they're only possible, and we only have reason to truly be proud of our accomplishments, because we could have failed. But Baruch Hashem, because we've made good decisions, we have what to be proud of. But if we were given the choice, you could never fail, but you'd also never have any of those accomplishments that have given you the greatest satisfaction in life. Would you take that choice? I don't think so. It's the possibility of failing which makes the possibility of succeeding, in fact, a reality and what gives life meaning. Says Rav Tzadok, that's what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying. I've reached the end. I've perfected myself so much that there's no more room to fail. And if there's no more room to fail, there's no more room to grow. And naturally, therefore, my life has come to an end. Hatsur Tamim Pa'alo, God, who is referred to here as the mighty or strong rock. His deeds are perfect. Mishpat, all of his ways are just. He is a faithful God. There is no injustice, but rather Tzadik V'yasharhu. He is righteous and he is upright. This Pasuk coming at the outset of Pasha Sa'azinu clearly is declaring as a matter, an article of faith, our belief in the righteousness of God's judgment, something that we don't always see, but as I said, we take as an article of faith. Rashi, in his comments on the various phrases in this Pasuk, also elaborates on this idea that even though we can't always see the reward of the righteous, we believe that eventually God is faithful and He will repay the righteous for their good deeds, even if sometimes they have to wait to Olam Haba. Similarly, God will punish, ultimately, whether we see it right away or not, the wicked for their um, 
evil ways and their injustice. And in fact, Tzadik Yasharhu, that is the basis, says Rashi, on this idea, which we're familiar with, known as Tzidok Adin, of justifying God's judgment. So this is basically the theme which we really is already conveyed by the simple reading of the Pasuk, and Rashi kind of elaborates on that. In the Chumash Mesoras Harav, the Chumash, which is based on the commentary uh, of the writings of Salvechik, it suggests here from Salvechik in other writings, but they bring it out here, two related ideas that in his deep philosophical way, Salvechik connected back to this Pasuk, which are deeper philosophical ruminations and elaborations on this theme. The first is that Salvechik began by quoting the Rambam in the Murnavuchim in the third section, where the Rambam explains what the basis is of assuming that a man will be treated fairly, in a sense. And that is the idea that we believe that, unlike for other species, human beings uniquely have a right and can expect to be treated based on hashkacha pratis. That is to say that Hashem will actually be involved with and care, not just for the greater species of mankind, but for individual human beings. And therefore, whether things are good or seem to be evil, just or seem to be unjust, that is definitely a legitimate matter for contemplation based on the premise, says the Rambam, that people will be allotted and given a certain level of hashkacha pratis. Salvechik, in explaining this, points out that it goes back to the creation story, that Adam is created as a unique and singular creature, unlike the other animals or plant life and vegetation, which are created liminehu or liminum, they're created as part of a species. Salvechik explains that the reason that animal or plant life was created as a species, and not individual animals, is because, really, ultimately, the individual animal or plant is expendable and replaceable. The species may be important to Hashem, but not the individual animal or plant. Mankind, however, is not just about mankind, but says our Salvechik, it's about every individual man or woman. Every individual is valued and is given a certain inalienable right. Uh, it's nice, says our Salvechik, and he does ruminate here even a little bit politically, it's nice that there have been documents throughout history, such as the Magna Carta or the Declaration of Independence, that describe these inalienable rights, but these are not given to us by the Magna Carta, obviously, or the Declaration of Independence. Rather, he says, they are being affirmed by these important documents. But of course, they come, based on our metaphysical understanding, they come as a gift from Hashem because of this idea that human beings were all created individually. And the philosophical persuasion known as statism, he quotes, where the total empowerment is given to the state, which comes at the cost of individual liberty, Things like fascism and communism ultimately result in Seder Salvechik. These are fundamentally at odds with the Jewish approach to the innate value of every human being. And Salvechik further elaborates that he's worried that the secularization of man's status in the modern world is unfortunately leading to further dehumanization and a lack of appreciation for the uniqueness of, and the sanctity of every human being. Furthermore, Salvechik uh, focuses on that second and the last, latter point in the Pasuk, which we mentioned already from Rashi, that of Tzidok Adin. The idea that when bad things seem to happen, we accept as a matter of faith that there must be more than meets the eye, and therefore we acknowledge, even in such difficult circumstances, the justness and righteousness of Hashem's decree. Tzur Tamim Palo, as we said. God is righteous, and we say this in other Pesukim as well. Salvechik quotes in this context the famous Mishnah and Masech Lebrachos, Andaf, 
Nun Dalid, in which it says, just like we bless the good things, so too we also bless the things that seem bad to us, Baruch Dayan HaMS. And we have to realize that even if a person is met with disaster or is confronting a kind of misfortune, we nevertheless have to accept it in the same manner that we accept a happy event. From a religious theological perspective, questioning is simply uh, not appropriate because we have to realize, and I think when we are more removed from this, we do realize it, but of course it's very difficult in the moment, but we have to realize that we simply have no ability and capacity to understand Hashem's judgment. The, the uh, Gemara and the Medrash uh, describe particularly the death of Hanina ben Trajon, who was executed in a particularly gruesome manner with his body wrapped in wet wool, so he would die slowly. Of course, this is part of the Saharuge Malchus, which we speak about not only on Tisha B'av, but also who we will be doing next week in Yom Kippur. And the Medrash describes that when this happened and the news of his execution arrived, everyone who was assembled, uh, in fact, quoted this Pasuk, and exclaimed, even in such a difficult circumstance, when the greatest tzaddikim being killed in such a gruesome death, the Medrash highlights the fact that they didn't say Eicha, but in fact accepted the decree of Hashem, and acknowledged his edict as being just and good. And by doing that, they were asserting that they didn't even have a right to ask. Now again, this is very difficult, obviously on an emotional level, when we're in the moment and we're suffering, but on a philosophical and theological level, said our Salvechik, this is in fact part of the ABCs of Yiddishkeit, and this is exactly what is being communicated in this Pasuk. One final caveat, or Salvation himself mentions, and it's included in this commentary, and we speak about it every year on Tisha B'av, and that is our Salvation was famous for believing that Tisha B'av was the exception to this rule. Because of the Miguel's Eicha written by Yirmiyoh, which is a questioning of Hashem, so our Salvation understood that to be a license, not only that we read Eicha, because it was done once in history, but that Tisha B'av and the Churban are unique, and that we can actually question Hashem. But in general, the theme and the ethics and the theology that emerge out of our Pasuk, Katsur Tamim Palo, Tzadik V'yasharhu, is the default religious posture. Zachor Yemo Solam, remember the days of old. Binu Shnos Dor Vador, understand the years of generation after generation. The Shem Mishmuel, the Sakachov Rebbe, the son and the successor of the famed Rav Avraham of Sakachov, the author of the landmark and transformative works Egletal and Avnei Nezer. So his son, Shem Mishmuel, commenting on our Parsha and explaining this well-known Pasuk has a remarkable and incredibly original interpretation which is filled with incredible lessons for us and really builds on one incredible and even radical insight after another. The Shem Yishmuel's departure, point of departure, is that he begins by assuming that on at least some deeper level, Binu Shnos Dor Vador should not be translated simply as understand the years of generation, of each generation. Rather, basing himself on a comment of the Ebenezer, he says that the word Shana comes milashon shinui, change, transformation. What does that mean? In what sense is the etymology, is the root of the word year, change, Shana milashon shinui? So he explains that in life, in general, you can really only appreciate something by contrasting it with its opposite. It's the sharp contrast between opposites 
which really allow us to more accurately and subtly and insightfully understand something. So for example, he says, if there would be no darkness in the world, there would be no sense or appreciation of what makes something light. And the opposite, of course, would be also true. If there was no such thing as light in the world, we wouldn't understand what would be bad or negative or even unique about darkness. It would just be it. It's only because we have light that we understand what darkness is, and only because of darkness that we understand and appreciate the benefits of light. So too, says the Shem Yishmuel, This is also true when it comes to the different generations. If all the generations were equally good, there'd be no way to distinguish one from another, and no way even to truly appreciate any of them. It's only because some generations are better and more righteous, and others are unfortunately less, that we have insight and appreciation into each of them. Therefore, says the Shem Yishmuel, that's what the Pasuk means when it says, Binu Shnos Dorvador. We should understand the differences from generation to generation. It is important, he stresses, that we understand our generation by seeing in what ways it's different than the previous generations, in what ways is it a Shinui from the Shnos Dor Vador? He goes on to explain, based on this premise, that in fact, as the generations go on, we generally have an idea of Yerida Sadoros, that uh, the closer people were to the giving of the Torah, the higher level they were on, that there's a general going in the wrong direction, I guess you could say, from generation to generation. And there's a famous Gemara, which is a little bit of a riddle. The Gemara Shabbos, Daf Kuf Yud Bey, says, if previous generations were like angels, then we're like people. But if the previous generations were like people, who are like donkeys. So what does that mean? Are we like people or are we like donkeys? So says the Shem Yishmuel, no, it's all perspective, and Shnehem Emes, they're both true. To the extent that the previous generation was angelic, kamalachim, really holy, so we don't measure up, we're like human beings. But if the previous generation wasn't so great, they were only like, like B'nai Adam, and we weren't even like them, then we are actually not even on that level. We are in fact like donkeys, kechamorim. And therefore he says, when it comes to evaluating the differences and the changes from generation to generation, we need to understand the differences between them, so that we can then hopefully improve, detect the problem, and do our best to try to fix the problem. There's no benefit in just studying history, so to speak, or just looking at one generation to the next. We have to understand not just Shnos Dorvador, but the Shinui Mi Dorvador. In what ways do we not measure up? In what ways are we different? In what ways are we deficient? And how can we improve? And he explains in one final insight, which I think really is quite profound. He says, we have to really examine carefully why exactly are there changes? Not enough to just diagnose the different result. We have to try to get to the deeper point to diagnose, diagnose what the causes are of this different result. We have to understand the cause, not just diagnose the symptom, but what's the cause. And then he says something so important. He says, don't just look for uh, excuse me, don't just look for something obvious or big. Rather, he says, 
we have to look after, we have to search for He says, you have to look for something more subtle. Don't just look for the obvious differences. Well, you know, a generation ago or two generations ago, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have this, they didn't have that. So therefore, that explains the differences. There may be a certain truth to that. But says the Shemi Shmuel, don't be lazy or seduced to just looking for the obvious things. Look for the Shinoi Kal, the subtle differences that in fact made a big impact. After we can identify those, then then we have to try to change that. And therefore that's why he says the Lashon of Binu, the emphasis on Binu, to truly understand Maven Dover, Dover, to truly understand subtlety and nuance, and don't just be seduced into looking for the obvious or the easy discrepancy and differentiation, but rather look in the depths, look in the subtle, look the nooks and the crannies, what are the differences between the generations, and then hopefully we can try to improve our current generation. Each generation can only improve themselves, but we do so by looking back and seeing not only the Schnostorvador, the Shinoi Medor Lador. At the outside of our Parsha, we read a poetic yet cryptic statement. Paraglamid Beis, Pasuk Beis, the Torah tells us as part of the Shira of Ha'azinu, Ya'arof Kamatar Lechi, Tizal Katal Imrasi. My Lekach, my lesson, this is an allusion to the Torah, it will drip like rain. My word, the words of Hashem, again, also allusion to Torah, will flow like dew. Yarov kamatar lechi, tizal katal imrasi. Rashi, in his comment to this pasuk, tells us that there's a difference between dew and rain. When it comes to the dew, hakol smechenbo. Everyone's happy with the dew because you wake up, there's some moisture on the ground, it helps the crops, it helps the vegetation, it doesn't harm anybody. However, when it comes to rain, says Rashi, Yesh shehin atzavim. Sometimes it makes people sad. There could be people, whether they are people who have things stored outside that are ruined by the rain, or if they are traveling and they themselves get caught in the rain and they get wet or dirty from it. Not everyone's happy when the rain comes, even though obviously it has positive benefits. Unlike the dew, in which it is all positive, everyone's happy from the moisture supplied by the dew. The Ksav Sofer, in his comments to this uh, pasuk, asks a very simple question. If there is something wrong with the rain, then why compare Torah to rain in the first place? Why not just compare it to dew? Right? Rashi is going out of his way to tell us why it's better to be compared to dew. Well, then only compare it to dew. Why would the Torah at all mention the connection to rain? Yarof kamatar dechi. So in order to explain this, Ksav uh, Sofer suggests a very beautiful and I think very instructive explanation. And he does so by first calling our attention to a well-known statement of Chazal in the Gemara Megillah, in Masechah uh, Megillah, excuse me, Davav Amidbeiz. There the Gemara tells us that if someone tells you, Yagati Volomatsati, I put an effort to learn Torah, but I wasn't successful. Or the opposite, Lo Yagati Umatsati, I put in no effort, and yet I was successful, don't believe such a person. Rather, says the Gemara, Yagati Umatsati Ta'amin, only if a person puts an effort and they are successful, can you believe? Which is both a guarantee uh, and a demand. On the one hand, it demands effort. On the other hand, there seems to be a certain level of guarantee that if you do put in the effort, eventually you will achieve some level of success and understanding in Torah. However, the Gemara continues and eventually qualifies this and says, even that 
is for understanding or sharpening your analytical uh, or deeper understanding of the Torah. However, when it comes to Lukma Girsa, which some understand means just to remember, not to sharpen your knowledge, but to remember what you learned, or the Rif says to get the practical halacha right, one way or the other, there's at least some dimension of Torah described as Ukme Girsa, which says the Gemara is Siyat Rishmaya. It's not really based on Yagati. Uh, you can't necessarily guarantee that just because you put in the effort, you will be successful. It's not necessarily true that Yagati Umatsasi, that there's this dimension, there's some particular dimension of Torah called Ukme Girsa, which in fact is all Siyat uh, Rishmaya. There is no, there is no guarantee. Nevertheless, the basic principle you see from this Gemara, says Ksav Sofer, is that on the one hand, you need to put in effort. Yagiyah is necessary for Torah's success. You can't be lazy. You have to put in the effort. On the other hand, even so, some dimension of Torah will always be a gift from above. It's always going to be requiring some level of siyata d'shmaya. I'll add, parenthetically, that Rechaim Velozhiner, in his comments to the fourth parak of Perkeavos, points out a very similar idea. And he says that's why the Gemara uses the term specifically matzati. Matzati, which means found, meaning I found, i.e. I accomplished uh, the Torah, but literally a matziah is to find a lost object. If you stumble on a lost object, that's luck, it's a gift. Says Rechaim Velozhiner, even when you put in the effort, yagati, it's still matzati, it's still only a matziah, it's still only a gift, in the sense that on the one hand you have to put in the effort, but even then it's a gift from Hashem. So it's a little bit of a diuk. Really, as far as I understand, the same idea of the Ksav Sofer, but a nuance he adds into the uh, inference, a diok, a close reading of the choice of word, Matsati. Either way, based on this understanding of the Gemara, the Ksav Sofer is ready to return to Rashi and Arparsha. Says the Ksav Sofer, we understand, there's actually a Gemara that says this, that there's a fundamental difference between dew and rain. Dew comes down to us from the heaven, straight from up above, and lands, so to speak, on the ground, on the grass, etc., settles on our crops, on our earth. Rain, however, is the result of a cycle. There is a cycle. Water evaporates, it comes clouds, it goes from the ground starting up, then evaporates, goes up, then it comes back down as rain. There's a cycle, the water cycle, that produces the rain. Matar, rain, is a cycle, goes up, it comes down, as opposed to the dew, which just goes down. Says the Sofer, now we can understand why the Torah chooses the two metaphors. On the one hand, says the Sofer, Torah is ultimately a gift from above, like the dew. It's ultimately a gift. But we have to work for it. As the Gemara said, it's also yagati. You only have the matzati if first you are yagati. So that is like the rain. You have to put in the effort down below, so that that effort, like the water, evaporates, eventually goes up, condenses, and then you'll receive the blessing as it comes back down as rain. So on the one hand, it's like dew, it's a gift. On the other hand, it requires, in order to trigger and be worthy of the gift, it requires something of a dimension of rain, it requires work down below. Ksav Sofer adds uh, that there's a pasuk in Mishlei, which we're familiar with because of a very popular song, and uh, part of the davening in the Yom and the Raim, the opening pasuk in the 16th chapter of Mishlei, Perk Tezayin, L'adam ma'archeilev, u'mahashem ma'aneh lashon. That on the one hand, a person prepares, does all the ma'archeilev, in his heart, in his effort, he puts in all the preparations, but at the end of the day, despite all the marchelev, all the preparations of man, Hashem ma'anel shown. What actually comes out of the mouth, our actual success, whether it's in learning or davening, ultimately is a gift from Hashem. So it's the same idea. On the one hand, we have to put in the effort. On the other hand, even when we put in the effort, ultimately our blessings, our successes are a gift from Hashem. And now, going back to Rashi, we understand. On the one hand, 
The Torah is compared to do, which Rashi says everyone is happy with. Who's not happy when they get a gift? Tal, a gift, just comes from above, a gift from Hashem. Who wouldn't want to be happy with that? Not everyone is happy with the fact that Torah is like rain, that you have to put in a lot of effort. But Rashi includes that nevertheless, because that's absolutely critical. The only way to merit Torah like do is to first work hard like rain. We are used to thinking of Yom Kippur as a unique day, a special day, a holy day. And while it is, of course, all of that, perhaps we can understand on a deeper level the ultimate purpose and goal of Yom Kippur if we take a wider perspective and remind ourselves that Yom Kippur isn't just a day, but in fact it is the culmination of a 40-day period which began on the first day of Elul. After all, the source of this entire period of time, and in fact the source of Yom Kippur being a day of atonement and forgiveness, comes when the Jews sinned with the golden calf, the Cheda Egel, and we know from tradition that Moshe ascended the mountain, he ascended Harsinai on Rosh Chodesh Elul. He remained there begging God for mercy for 40 days until he returned on Yom Kippur with the good news of the forgiveness that the Jewish people were receiving and a new set, the second set of Luchos, accompanying that divine promise of forgiveness. It's striking that in addition to this original source of 40 days and Yom Kippur as a day of atonement, there are other examples, some before and some after, in Tanakh and in Halacha, in which similarly we see, again, the number 40 being associated with forgiveness, change, and transition. For example, initially, the days of Noah, the world went through a cataclysmic tradition with the 40 days and nights of the flood. The Jewish people wandered through the Midbar for 40 days, transitioning to the next generation. A mikvah, the source of purity and spiritual change, must have at least 40 sa'ah of water. And, as we'll read on Yom Kippur afternoon, the people of Nineveh were given 40 days to do tshuva. Change the number 40 always seem to go together, and the question is why. Perhaps the answer is based on a mystical Kabbalistic tradition that teaches that in addition to the known gamatria, numeric value of every Hebrew letter, Aleph is 1, Bet is 2, Gimel is 3, Chaf is 20, Yud is 10, Lamed is 30, etc. In addition to that, that's really what we would call the nistar, the revealed value of the letter. However, there is a Kabbalistic tradition that every letter also has an additional hidden value, not the nigla value, but the nistar, the hidden value, not the revealed, but the hidden. What is the hidden value? Well, Aleph, you could just look at the letter Aleph. But if you were spelling it out phonetically, how would you spell it out? Aleph, Lamed, Fei. Or, you know, Gimel. Gimel, Yud, Mem, Lamed. Or maybe you wouldn't use the Yud. I don't know exactly how you would spell it. Uh, Dalet, Dalet, Lamed, Tuf. Uh, you know, so, so, things like that. So, uh, in that case, getting back to the Aleph as an example, the revealed value is one, as we said. But if you separate that from the subsequent Lamed and Fei, which make up the completion of the phonetically sounded word, you have two other letters, which are the hidden, the Nistar value of the letter. In the case of Aleph, the Nistar is 110, because Lamed is 30 and Fei is 80. So when it comes to uh, Aleph, for example, the revealed value is 1, and the hidden value, this mystical tradition, is that is 110. The point being is that what we just saw with the letter 1 is true with virtually every other letter. The revealed value is always different than the hidden one, with, I think, the lone exception being the letter Mem. Mem, which has the gematria, the numerical value of 40, when spelled out, all you have to do is add another Mem. In other words, the hidden and the revealed values of Mem are identical. Mem and Mem. 40 and 40. It doesn't seem to be a coincidence that of all of the letters, of all of the values in which the hidden and revealed are the same, it's none other than the one we've been talking about, number 40. 
The deeper message seems to be that the number 40 is associated with change because real and lasting change isn't about adding something new or different, but rather it's about taking what was always there, but hidden, and revealing it. Taking the Nistar and making it Nigla. Tshuva, every day, and especially on this day, on Yom Kippur, the culmination of the 40-day process, is about taking what was hidden and revealing it. Not necessarily about becoming a new person, but rather about uncovering and rediscovering the wonderful qualities that we always had, but which perhaps over the past year have become covered and clouded by the dirt and soot of sin. We take the Neshama Tahora, the pure soul that Hashem implanted in us, we polish it, and we rediscover it. We typically are accustomed to understanding the word tshuva to mean return, return to God. We've distanced ourselves from God over the course of the year with our sin. Rav Kook, however, explains in a number of places that the real meaning of tshuva is to return to ourselves. Bakashat ha'ani a'atzmi. A return to our true selves. A return to our innate capacity, our inborn capacity, and potential for greatness, our natural state of purity. I'd like to conclude by sharing a really beautiful and I think instructive and inspirational story that was retold by um, Rav Yaakov Galinsky, the famed Yerushalmi Magid. And it describes autobiographically, it's a story that happened to him uh, when he was a young man, before he ever came to Israel, when he was in a communist labor camp in Siberia. At that time, he noticed that one of his bunkmates would wake up in the middle of the night when he thought no one else was looking, but it turns out Yaakov Galinsky was, he would get out of his bed in the middle of the night. He had something hidden under his bed. It turns out it was a uniform. He used to put it on. And he used to look at himself in a crude mirror and seem to salute. And he did this night after night. And at one point, Rabbi Galinsky couldn't control his curiosity. And he interrupted the person. He said, can I ask you, what are you doing? The man responded, I didn't think anyone had seen me. I'm a little bit embarrassed. But since you're asking, I'll tell you. Every day in this Gehenim, this hell on earth, we're treated like animals. We're fed like dogs, and we're made to feel like dirt. But you should know that in World War I, I was a general, and this was my uniform. I put it on for a moment every night because it reminds me about who I really am. Not the way they're treating me now, but who I was, because that's who I really am. Yom Kippur, starting with the haunting, moving tune of Kol Nidre, ushers us into this holy atmosphere of a day of atonement, forgiveness, and return to self. On this holy day, the custom is for many married men to wear a kittel, and even single men and women wear special clothing, often white. We all wear different shoes. And the goal is to remind ourselves of who we really are. That in a certain sense, yes, there's a part of us that's doma lamalachim, that's angelic, that's pure, that's holy. We have that part inside of us. We don't eat, we don't drink. And we say even Baruch Shem Kivod Machusoli after the Shema out loud, because we are trying to remind ourselves about who we really are and the potential that we can become once again. That is the 40-day period. That is the culmination. That is the essence of Yom Kippur. The mem turning into a mem. The hidden becoming revealed, returning to our true, holy, and pure selves.